Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada has extended three of its COVID-19 supports for businesses until June of 2021, but is it enough? CFIB President and CEO Dan Kelly joins us to talk about that. Premier Doug Ford overruled the advice of his medical experts on opening up COVID-19 testing back in the spring. Why is the science being ignored? We'll talk about that. And security is on high alert in Washington today as reports that a militia group might be planning to attack the Capitol again. We'll get the latest from Brian Karam in Washington. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. So many victims. I mean, we're all victimized, obviously, by the pandemic and and the things that are going on. And uh, one group that we've talked an awful lot about here, and and deservedly so, of course, are small businesses who have really been impacted in in such a negative way here by some of the policies that have been enacted. And I think sometimes wrong-headed policies, too. Uh, But there has been some support. Whether or not it's enough, we're going to get into in just a couple of minutes here. Yesterday, the Prime Minister announced that, uh, well, he says we've come a long way in the fight against the pandemic, but uh, not out of the woods yet. I think the numbers obviously indicate that. So yesterday, the Prime Minister announced an extension of programs to help workers and businesses to make it to the finish line. We are extending the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy and the Canada Emergency Rent Subsidy and Lockdown Support at their current levels until June. In other words, we're making sure that the wage and rent subsidies continue through the spring and that the amount of support remains consistent. Which I guess is good news. I mean, anytime there's, there's money flowing, that's good news. But uh, we have to talk about just how effective these programs have been and uh, and, and how it's helping uh, the, the small businesses that have been so negatively impacted uh, by what's gone on over the last, well, 12 months now. Joining us to talk about this is Dan Kelly. Dan is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Great to have you back on the show, Dan. Thanks so much for the time today. Glad to be with you. I guess and, and any money is is good news, I suppose, when it comes into situations like this. But it's, it's been almost a year now, Dan. Talk to us about what you're hearing from your members about the, the provincial and the federal programs that are in place here and, and, and whether or not it's having any impact to basically keep small businesses with, uh, above water here. No, look, the, the, the situation facing small and medium-sized businesses across the province, across the country, remains incredibly grave. Yes, uh, more businesses are slowly being allowed to open, and there was a little bit of news that in the Toronto area, uh, some businesses now, retailers, will be finally allowed to uh, open their doors a crack. But that doesn't put them out of the woods by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, look, uh, businesses are right now deeply in debt. Uh, the average small business has inherited $170,000 in COVID-related debt. A lot of that is in unpaid bills, especially unpaid uh, rent bills. Uh, And we're also estimating that 180,000 Canadian businesses will close their doors for good before the pandemic is over just because of the damage that they have, that they've sustained over the course of the last 12 months. Some of these lockdowns, of course, have stretched on for hundreds of days. I think the record in Canada right now is, uh, is gyms, uh, sorry, indoor dining in Toronto will have been closed, I think, as of today, for 275 days. Uh, so, you know, we are dealing with just this giant crisis still, and so many of the government support programs, while helpful, are just inadequate to the size, scope, and duration of this, of this pandemic. Well, let's talk about the rent subsidy. Let's face it. I mean, I, I think I was talking with one economist. This is going back a year now when this whole thing started. Uh, and essentially, he said, uh, my message to small businesses, if you're renting and you don't own your building, he says, you're screwed. 
Uh, and and that's that's come to pass, obviously, with so many small businesses right now. And the government program here is is it's it's basically it's it's you know a rent subsidy like this is one thing, but if you have to pay these things back at the end of the day, that's increasing the debt load, Dan, and that's that's making almost an insurmountable amount of money uh, that's going to be on the you know the ledger for these guys, and they're going to have to make good on that. How do you do that? In in well, with, you know, given the circumstances that we're facing these days, it's hugely problematic i you know i'm I'm really worried that we haven't seen even the tip of the iceberg of business failures yet Sixty thousand businesses across canada have already failed but we're expecting uh, tens of thousands more of additional businesses to close uh, look look uh, just to get a sneak preview so some businesses are open now uh, others will be opening in the weeks ahead uh, but governments are still advising Canadians to stay at home and as long as that happens, as long as office workers are being encouraged to work from home, as long as we're being discouraged from going to restaurants or there are limitations in the numbers that can can even be in a restaurant, uh, we can't go to the theater, we can't travel the way that we're, we would like, the border remains closed. Until all of those measures end and governments can tell us it's now time to return to normal life because we've either had enough Canadians vaccinated or, or other measures are in place, it's at that stage governments can start to say, okay, maybe we can pull back on some of the supports that are there. But the rent subsidies have been terrible. I mean, the, the, the first program was a complete disaster, the Canada Emergency, as it was called, uh, CICRA, and, and that program was a complete disaster. Virtually nobody got any rent support. The new program is much better. I credit Christy Freeland when, when she took the reins in finance, our deputy prime minister. Um, she did put in place, I think, a decent program that provides all businesses with any degree of revenue loss a subsidy for their rent uh, based on the amount of the losses that they have incurred. Unfortunately, though, there are some real gaps in that program. Uh, many businesses that that uh, are, are disqualified, especially newer firms, and, and we were really worried that the program was going to disappear or be scaled back. Just yesterday, uh, Christy Freeland announced that that would be uh, extended now till June, uh, good news, it's going to be extended at current levels, and those businesses that remain facing lockdowns are, are going to be able to get 25% additional money out of the program. So that's, that's, that's certainly help. Uh, the provincial programs, I will tell you, have been terrible. Uh, I've spoken to many business owners who are disqualified from the, the Ontario's very stingy uh, government support programs. They're, they're complimenting themselves all over the place. Uh, but Ontario's handling of the pandemic has been a disaster. Uh, business owners remain deeply angry at the Ford government for maintaining the lockdowns in the way that they did, especially the big box stores, you know, big, allowing big box stores to remain open while small firms were closed. The grant and subsidy programs to help businesses out are way less than in, in many other provinces, with fewer businesses qualifying. They've had a, a real tin ear to, uh, to the business community, and it's it's quite shocking because the Ford government touted itself as a real small business champion. Well, that's what he told us anyway. You know, he's he's the friend of small business, and uh, I, I haven't heard too many people, you know, applauding him as a result of that. I mean, that that last shutdown, the lockdown, was just horrific. I mean, the impact that it was having on businesses who seemed to be, I'm not going to say getting back on their feet, but, you know, they, they were surviving at least in situations like that. And then you do a full lockdown like that. Uh, and, and like I say, if it's a one-size-fits-all, Dan, I think people could say, I think it sucks, but I guess we're all in this together. But when you see the lineups at Costco and you see 
these lineups everywhere else, and the small business person is not even allowed to open their doors. Uh, you, you've got to wonder, where's the fairness here? And, and more importantly, and this is something I've asked the premier and I've asked the minister in charge of this, and I'm not getting any answers, where's the data to suggest that small businesses are part of the problem when you see a spike? Oh, you're raising a, an incredibly important point. Uh, you know, business owners wanted to see the data uh, that supported the locking down of retail, the locking down of even indoor dining or gym visits. Um, it really, I mean, the little bit of data that, that governments did put out suggested that, in fact, it was, you know, personal activities that were happening in people's homes that were the real drive yeah. of COVID case counts. And we did precious little to address that. It was very clear to us that what, what, the, gover- what the government did is it used small businesses as in order closing them to send a message to the public to stay home, and and I understand that. I mean, you know, the public, you know, is obviously needing to change its uh, its behaviors, uh, and so by shutting down businesses and shutting down restaurants, uh, you know, the message is well, oh, the public is to receive is well, gosh, if those places are closed, then I better stick stick at home and not have a house party. I'm not sure that that was particularly successful, given that we used that measure for hundreds of days uh, across uh, across the spring and the fall, uh, with very little effect it seems on case counts. But beyond that, you can imagine how angry it makes a business owner to be used as an example. So your business activity is not particularly risky, like selling lighting in a lighting store <laughs> with three customers, um, but you're shut down. Your home may be. Uh, taken by the bank because you're not able to pay your bills, uh, not because of activities that are happening in your business, but to send a message to somebody else. You can understand why business owners would be so unhappy with the government for doing that, especially when they see every other province taking different approaches. Yes, some used lockdowns, but I can tell you none were as long or as severe as Ontario's. And and you wonder about the justification. I mean, I, I told the story just before Christmas, before the lockdown, uh, we went to one of our favorite restaurants up in up in Blue Mountain in the village there, and uh, they had plexiglass up there, you know, so just so every table was actually its own booth. And I thought, boy, these guys are going to handle on this. This I know it's costing them an arm and a leg to do this, but you know they had people in there and it, there's social distancing. I mean, you know, the restaurant was only like not, not even half capacity. But they got their doors locked. It's 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 like we have a food inspection protocol in, in most cities right now. You know, you get green means you can go in there and the food's okay. If there's a problem, there's different yeah. colors. If somebody breaks those rules, Dan, they don't shut down every restaurant in the city. They they tell that owner get your act together. So why in heaven's name did they do this blanket thing with everybody in the province? Because everybody suffers because there might have been one or two bad players, but we don't even know that though because they don't have any data to substantiate the decision. Well, look, you know, during the first wave of, the, of COVID, business owners understood that governments needed to act fast. We didn't know what the heck we were dealing with. Uh, governments understand, and public health officials got things wrong. Business owners, even though they were deeply negatively affected, they understood that governments couldn't have possibly foreseen every circumstance and they, ha- and they were going to get some things wrong, and they sucked it up. But during the second wave, Gosh, I mean, we knew a second wave was coming for months. We had been told by governments it was coming. But we, we stuck with the one-measure lockdown that we used in the spring instead of trying other techniques to combat COVID. Business owners, to your very point, are on board, and they are spending money to try to protect themselves, protect their family, protect their employees and their customers from COVID. 
they're they're recognizing that there need to be limitations and 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 protocols put in place. That's fine. But for goodness sakes, this blanket closure was was so dumb. I mean, where the heck is the rapid testing um, in employment situations? Could a hair salon stay open if the hairdressers themselves uh, were given a rapid test once a week that the government provided, and then they could advertise that to their customers to show that they have taken steps to try to prevent COVID spread? Uh, but that was non-existent, and the government's been incredibly slow, both federal and provincial, to roll out rapid testing to in employment situations. Contact tracing disappeared because COVID numbers were high. There are other ways of addressing this which have been used in markets around the world, but Canada just said lockdown, 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 the Ontario government more than any other, and that's why business owners are as weak as they are right now, with thousands likely to fail. Well, I, I just... It, it boggles my imagination to suggest that or, you know any restaurant you know is, is is part of the problem here. I mean, for God's sakes, I mean, there's at any given time there's only about six or eight people in the restaurant, and they're they're not just six feet apart; they're usually fifteen, twenty feet apart. Uh, please don't tell me that that's causing spread. I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. So, but that's what it is. But the other element to this, and I'm glad you brought this up, is some of the support programs, and 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 I'm hearing from an awful lot of businesses, Dan, that are very upset about some of these provincial programs. Something is what we would consider to be as small as as paid sick for instance, uh, which is really the, it, notwithstanding what the, the Premier says, it's the provincial responsibility. It's a labor issue. And uh, other jurisdictions have done this. It just means if you don't have that in many situations, especially in some of these uh, restaurant and other industries where uh, the people are making minimum wage, uh, if you don't go to work, you don't get paid. And if you're feeling sick and you're having symptoms, you figure, I've I got to pay the rent, I've got to feed my kids, I've got to go to work. And and that's part of the problem. Other jurisdictions have made accounts allowances for this. This province refuses to do it. And it's a big deal. Yeah, I, I, look, I uh, on this one, I will defend the, the, the Ford government. Uh, so every single Canadian, every single working Canadian, has access to paid sick leave during the pandemic. That, that this was one of the first things that was solved when the pandemic started. The provincial governments, uh, led by British Columbia, by the NDP and D.C., called on the federal government to ensure that there was a proper program to support uh, Canadians that didn't have access to paid sick leave. So the, cover, the feds put it in place through the EI system uh, about 10 months ago. And, and yet many, many people have been told that there is no paid sick leave and that the province needs to create a program uh in order to do that but a paid sick leave will ultimately be a responsibility of the employer and unions are using this as an opportunity to get back uh paid sick leave almost no pro- no provinces in canada have uh paid uh, have significant amounts of paid sick leave provided to employees and uh and so we we agree with the ford government that this right now it should be delivered through the federal program if the federal program is insufficient we should be fixing that and not putting a new bill on the backs of small business owners at this critical time. There's, I mean, my guys have no money left. Uh, they're going bankrupt. And to expect small business owners to pick up the car, I'm not suggesting that's what you were suggesting, but, wow. to, to, but business owners know that a paid sick leave, provincial paid sick leave, will ultimate, the bills for that will ultimately trickle back to the small business itself. And that's where, uh, the, that's the reason why. Uh, a program like that can't work. 
Yeah, well, what I'm hearing is the people on one-offs. In other words, I'm feeling I have symptoms, I need to go get tested. Uh, or, hey, my kid's sick today, so I've got to stay home. And, and they, yeah. they're they not getting compensated. So, and my well, understanding all, is the all federal government. The, the good news is all of those people in those circumstances can access the uh, paid sick leave that is provided through the uh, system right now, whether well, they're self-employed the... or whether they're an employee. Uh, but the visibility of that program is actually quite low. Uh, and unions have think uh, have also whipped this up into a it whipped Canadians up into a frenzy that there's a big gap that really just doesn't exist. Well, we suggest people that, that are in that circumstance then obviously to, to explore that, and that, that's part of the problem. I think there's been a, a communication gap from both levels of government uh, about what's available to whom in, in situations like this, and, and that's that's hurting an awful lot of people and some of the businesses as well. Uh, let's let's talk. I, I've got a couple of minutes left here. Let's talk about the recovery itself here, uh, and, and I've somewhat problematic. I know there was a, a bit of a rise in number of new cases here in the Hamilton area uh, over the last couple of days, and they're already talking about another shutdown. Uh, and to that point, Dan, open and closing, open and closing. Okay, you're closed this week, or you can open this week. Now we're closing you again. Uh, th- this, this inconsistency right now is, is, is not what really what small businesses need. I mean, there has to be a plan, uh, and there has to be some support, and they have to know whether or not they're going to be opening their doors next week again. Yeah, no, this is a huge problem. We've already seen this, you're right, in several markets across Ontario uh, where businesses were allowed to open and then and then shut down again. Uh, you can imagine, that, what, think about this in a restaurant setting. You recall your workers, <laughs> and you, you ask them to come back, they return, then you have to lay them off again. Uh, this would be perhaps the third or perhaps fourth time that they would be laid off. Secondly, you bought perishable food items to serve in your restaurant. All of that then goes in the garbage. Uh, you've got you've got uh, you know retailers that buy seasonal goods that then they miss. They sometimes miss a season, and then they have to sell at fire sale prices the goods that they have purchased. You have rent bills that that then go unpaid. Uh, uh, if you're able to access the rent subsidy, it only covers a part portion of those rent bills. So, I mean, the whipsaw effect is massive, and you're absolutely right. This is a giant struggle for business owners. At the same time, uh, we do need to make sure that, that governments do take the chance to reopen businesses. Only in the most grave circumstances, though, should we be co- closing businesses again. Ontario has been a little too trigger-happy already using the emergency break. Uh, and, 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 gosh, we've got to find a better check and balance in that stems back to my that brings me back to my earlier point there are other measures beyond lockdown that that can be employed to keep covid numbers down and and one of them is rapid testing you've got a, a case count going up then get some rapid tests out to the employers in those communities to ensure that anybody that is asymptomatic can be tested to ensure that the covid numbers remain low and and consumers by by and large, I think, Dan, we're playing ball here. I mean, we are wearing our mask. I mean, there's a, obviously there's a small segment that just don't want to buy into this, and that's, they are what they are. That's fine. But I see, even when the shops are open, uh, if it says limit of three, people, are, they'll wait outside. There, there's nobody grumbling about this. You know, they, it's, Okay, this is what we need to do. At least the damn store is open. I mean, that seems to be the consensus here. And I, I don't see why we can't continue along that way uh, with the mask wearing, with the social distancing, uh, just, just to give small businesses a, a chance to try to survive. You're, you're absolutely right. Look, with, with, with vaccines uh, rollouts being as slow as they are, we're going to be living with COVID for months and months and months. And unless we're prepared to shut down every business uh, tight 
uh, until such time, until end of September, when the government tells us we're going to have vaccines available to every Canadian that wishes to have one, we're, we're going to have to figure out ways to deal with this. And, and that's my point. Business owners, and I think you're making the same argument, people, both citizens and business owners, are on board for measures to try to keep COVID numbers low. I think we've done a good job. And Canadians, you know, overall have been incredibly responsible through this pandemic and have limited their their lives. Businesses have basically killed their own incomes in order to try to address the deadly pandemic that, that, that remains facing us. But if we just try to hide under a rock for the next number of months, there are going to be millions of Canadians that will not have jobs to come back to. Mm-hmm. We are already estimating with that 180,000 businesses that we expect to close their doors for good this year uh, as a result of the damage they've, they've uh, sustained during COVID, that that will take out 2.4 million Canadian private sector jobs, jobs that will disappear. And so we will be facing economic calamities uh, to replace the COVID health emergency and, and the more we can do to get businesses to open, remain open, even if it's not at full capacity right now, the less damage that we're going to have and the easier recovery Canada will, will be able to enjoy. And, and gosh, as we look at the U.S. economy that's rolling out vaccines quickly with the economies in most markets now wide open, you think about the tourism industry as we approach the summer. I, I, I oh, that's, that's international all... tourism will, will remain uh, you know, will remain uh, basically. It'll be a ghost town for international exactly. tourists in Canada, and it'll be flocking to the U.S. Exactly. We'll have to leave it there for now. We're just out of time. Dan, uh, keep fighting the good fight, and uh, we'll stay in touch as we go down the road here. Thanks for this today. Anytime at all. Take care, Dan Kelly, President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's focus on what's going on with the uh, investigation into long-term care facilities here in the province of Ontario, and more specifically about how the provincial government has handled uh, the crisis in long-term care uh, pre-pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic as well. And there has been rather startling testimony over the last little while. The Minister of Long-Term Care uh, testified through her notes a couple of days ago, of course, that uh, her advice uh, was essentially ignored by the Chief Medical Officer and by the Premier and other people around the Cabinet table uh, when it came to lockdowns and and visitation rights, etc., long-term care to try to flatten the curve. Yesterday, the Health Minister, Christine Elliott, who was also the Deputy Premier, uh, essentially said that uh, the Premier ignored her advice uh, when it came to uh, in the, examining exactly what these people should be doing in these homes. Uh, and it's rather startling, obviously. Uh, you've got two of the ministers in the, the Ford Cabinet right now that are saying that they had contrary advice to, to what the Premier wanted to do, and he went ahead and did what he wanted anyway, in spite of that uh, the, rest, the, the, the advice that was being given in this particular case by Minister Elliott. Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, well, it's kind of a damning exercise, certainly, uh, but it kind of points the finger right at the Premier's office as to what things went wrong and what things went right. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan. Of course, he is the former Queen's Park Bureau Chief and Parliament Hill reporter for the Toronto Star for many, many years. Uh, Badger, great to have you back on the show. Uh, interesting stuff that's coming down here. I don't, I don't know if a minister can actually throw the Premier under the bus, but uh, they're, uh, they're not painting the Premier in a very good light here. Well, I, I'm surprised that they actually said it, <laughs> both, both yeah. ministers. I, I was a, a bit taken aback because they usually everybody sings from the same hymn book, but in this case they didn't. So I, I don't, you know, I don't know what's up. Uh, it's, I mean, it, it 
does not paint the premier in a good light by any stretch of the imagination. It, it sounds like, you know, I'm the boss and I know better. And, you know, you're not listening to anybody. And the worst thing you can do, Bill, you know, you know this and, and all the listeners do too, is to have people around you that says yes, that say yes all the time. Mm-hmm. And in this case, they didn't. But they were, they seemed to, you know, on appearance anyway, they seemed to have been ignored. And, and at, you know, at their, you know, at the peril of Ontario, quite frankly. Well, you try to connect the dots here. I mean, you know, this is the premier that said he was going to do anything it took, uh, whatever the cost, to fix this long-term care problem. That's what he said publicly. He said it on my show. He said it to other media outlets. And okay, that's so. It's not as if he said, "Oh, I don't think this is much of a problem at all. Why are we even wasting our time?" That that was not what he was saying publicly. And I, I, you and I talked about it in the past. I, I, I think he's, he probably meant it at the time. But then when you get behind closed doors and you start saying, okay, how are we going to develop policy on this? Uh, clearly, he's not listening to his experts. He's not listening to the people that are around the table. And especially on something like this with testing. Uh, and it's not as if, uh, you know, they said, well, we think it's a dumb idea. They simply said, we don't have the resources. Because uh, how many times has, has the premier said, anybody who wants a test can get a test? And, and the health minister and the chief medical officer said, don't say that. We don't have the resources to do it. And if, you know, somebody walks in off the street and says, I need a test because I think I, I have a runny nose or whatever the symptom might be, that's one less person in a long-term care facility that we can test because we just don't have it. And he ignored that. I mean, where was his head? Well, I mean, for the health minister to come out and say, don't say that, we don't have the infrastructure to handle that. And to ignore it is completely surprising and it it, it it tells me that he's not listening and and I'm a bit surprised in a way at that because I thought I really believed that you know uh, the premier was a guy that would listen to others but boy this certainly tells otherwise and 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 that you know just not in this incident in terms of how COVID was handled and what who else is he not listening to you know, in terms of, for example, the, you know, having booze in the Seven Eleven. I mean, who the heck is he listening to? Because it certainly doesn't make any sense what what he's doing now, and what he was suggested he do. It, it it's quite alarming, actually. Well, the other side of that coin is who is he listening to as opposed to who is he not listening to. Uh, I mean, you know, Minister Fullerton, who, of course, is the Minister of Long-Term Care, which, by the way, is a portfolio that the Premier himself created. That that didn't exist before. So we thought, okay, there's a specific portfolio for this now. Uh, these guys must mean business. But I think she she characterized herself when she was uh, doing her testimony a couple of days ago as the forgotten partner in this whole situation. She was basically just told to sit down, shut up, and, and vote when we tell you to vote. It, it, it amazes me. I'm again. I'm a bit taken aback that she's come out so forcefully because she has been a bit of a shrinking violet, quite frankly. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and maybe that's that's because she was told to be, you know, you'll you'll speak when you're spoken to, kind of thing. Like we were told when we were kids. I mean, that doesn't work. You you can't have ministers who are muzzled ministers in of a ministry like that that is so important. And, and being and told, you know, well, we're not, we don't really care what you have to say. It's not good for, it's not good for Ontario for, by any stretch. It's not good for seniors, absolutely. 
to to think that you know he made one promise that he's going to put an iron ring around uh, long term care, and uh, we're still waiting for that. And and you know things are continuing on as they have always been. You know seniors, you know not being treated properly, not you know not being looked after at long term care homes. To me, nothing's changed, and that's the most appalling part of all this. Well, with this newest revelation, uh, it should be interesting to see. I assume he's going to take questions. He does his daily media thing at 1 o'clock today. And, and by the way, we'll be carrying that live on CHML. Uh, but I'd, I'd, I'd like to see some of the folks in the Queen's Park uh, press gallery there uh, jumping all over this. I mean, does, you know, like where is the credibility here when you do something like this? You say that you're going to do something, and then you are blatantly ignoring the experts. And, and listen, nobody nobody comes out of this looking good. I mean, you know, you know, Dr. Williams, who's the chief medical officer, of course, was on side with the, uh, with the health minister, too, saying, no, we can't do that testing. But, I mean, he, he wears some of the blame, too, because, remember, he's the one that also said he didn't think asymptomatic spread was a problem at all. And we know that it was. Uh, just about every other doctor in the country was saying, yeah, it's something we need to address, and he didn't. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that, uh, that obviously, this spread as quickly as it did in long-term care facilities. So they, they're... they're uh, I, I, they're shooting at each other right now here, Badger. I mean, you know, the, with this minister going after this minister, they're going after the chief medical officer, and they're turning their guns on the premier right now too. So you got to wonder. It, it, it's no wonder we're in the mess that we're in right now because these guys clearly didn't know what they were doing. Well, it's the, you know, I mean, this is, this may sound a little cruel, but it, but it, it's fact. I mean, everybody out there has seen what I've seen. This has been fumbled from the very beginning. And it continues to be fumbled. We, you know, we've got we've got now vaccine that you know has a shelf life to April second, and not sure how they're going to get it out. I mean, it's one day after the other. Like, who's on first? I, I you know, it it just drives you crazy to just think of that this you know something as important as this is being treated so trivially. At least in my mind. That they just can't seem to get organized. People aren't listening to other people. We don't, you know, they don't know when the vaccines are coming. They do when they do come. They just not enough, you know. And then we're not sure when when the next batch is, you know, you know, is going to arrive. It really is. I, I won't say on air what it is, but it really is not good. It's it's just it's it's troublesome to think that we have a a government that can't handle something of this nature when we went through SARS and we we had the book on SARS and we were told how to handle something like that in the future and it's been ignored. And it, it's not just, by the way, that we're talking about the, the Minister of Health here, Christine Elliott. Uh, it's, it wasn't just her. I mean, there were other people that we're finding out through her testimony here and from her notes uh, that were part of the, uh, the the expert panel that was set up by Public Health Ontario, uh, and they said, "Don't do this. Don't don't. You can't just offer a test to everybody. We just don't have the capacity." Uh, so th- there were a number of voices around the table said, "Mr. Premier, don't." And, you know, I, I'm, I'm waiting to hear his explanation as to, well, I got information that proves out. Show me. And again, it comes back to what we've talked about in the past. There's no transparency here. So when you hear information like this and you hear the kind of infighting that seemed to go on, you know, behind closed doors here, how can you have any confidence in what they're saying? Well, I'm going back a ways now on this, but don't forget, they brought a, a regulation limiting the amount that you could sue private uh, companies operating yep. long-term care homes. 
nobody knew about that. That was just that was just thrown down. That was as a matter of fact. So it, so much is being done, you know, wrongly and 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 in secret that people are beginning to understand or understand or understand for sure. But they're looking and saying, okay, what's the real story here? Why was it fumbled so badly? Who knew and didn't do stuff? And it's now this story starting to come out now that the premier did know. He was told explicitly in this case about you know having people tested. Don't do it. And that's and everybody should should wonder why that's happening or how and ask themselves how that could happen when when we're in the midst of a pandemic. Well, and of course. Notwithstanding, Wayne, the premier thought was there going to be the right idea here about the testing protocol. Uh, he did it his way, not the way the medical experts said. And he, like many other things he said to do here, uh, he had to backtrack. A couple of months later, he said, okay, it's only going to be by appointment that you can't do it the other way uh, like he wanted to do. So you got to ask yourself, you know, what, what, what damage did that decision do? How many people, you know, were, were negatively impacted, especially in long-term care facilities? Well, this seems the premier's got a bicycle that only pedals backwards. I mean, this this is just one instance where they, he's had to back off on something. You can't run a government like that. You have you you just can't. You have to listen to people. Bill, I've seen over forty three years or a good part of my forty three years I covered politics. The worst thing you can do is stop listening to people and think you know it all. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid that's what's happening here, or at least we're giving the impression that's what's happening here. You remember, let's go back about a year or so ago, when we started to see this crisis unfolding in long-term care facilities. Uh, One of the big points that they kept bringing up was we don't have enough personal protective equipment to do uh, what needs to be done here, the face masking and gloves, things of that nature. Uh, And and Minister Elliott actually touched on that as well. and, and bad on the, the previous government, I mean, because they let these things lapse. I mean, a whole lot of stuff had get tossed out, I guess, because it had gone, gone beyond its expiry date. I'm not quite sure how gloves and masks have an expiry date, but I guess they do. So take that as it will. But they didn't replace them. And they, they said, well, not until we put a new system in place, which is part, as we recall, the Ford government mantra there was to replace anything that the Liberals done, tear it apart, and we'll, we're going to make it our own. They said, well, there's going to be a new supply system. Well, they never did it. And, and they didn't replace what was there. So, yeah, the shelves were bare, but that was bad on them as much as it was the previous government, maybe even more so, because they had an opportunity to simply say, well, let's order more, and they didn't do it until they said, well, we're going to establish, we'll, we're working on a new system, we'll get around to that. And boom, the pandemic hits, and we're caught short. Well, to be, to be fair, though, Bill, they, there was a lot of people caught short. It wasn't yeah, I just get it. Ontario. I mean, they said that they, again, again, they said, you know, we'll make sure that we do things differently. I understand what you're saying. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of provinces and a lot of jurisdictions caught short with that. The point is when you when you see that you're you know you're being caught short and that the things aren't adding up, you got to have somebody in place to take charge, and that's where the whole system's falling down. Is that there's no one it seems who's willing to take charge based on the information they've got it's just it's it's everything's done on the back of an envelope and that's the most irritating thing of all well and especially because of, we're hearing all this uh, this testimony now from minister elliott mr fullerton and, and others who of course are going to follow along on this 
And, and I'm not seeing any evidence here, Badger, that, that they've learned from this, that anything's any better now than it was then. Well, God, we can only pray that they have, Bill. <laughs> you know, you learn from your mistakes. I mean, if you got a half a brain, you learn from your mistakes. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the, you know, the premier will learn from his mistakes, and and not just the premier, that that the entire government learns from his mistakes, and see that things don't happen again like this. But the what the picture we're being painted now is is you know we're talking about the Keystone cops here. That's what it sounds like to me. Everybody's yeah. running around in a circle, not really sure what they're doing. Well, it's going to be interesting to see. As I say, 1 o'clock this afternoon, we'll give an update from the Premier himself on this. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks for this. Great to have you on the show again today. Okay, thanks, Bill. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, former Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for the Toronto Star. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, eyes on Washington today uh, because of the uh, rumors on social media uh, over the last couple of days that there could well be some groups that may want to attack the Capitol once again or something in Washington anyway. So obviously they're on high alert. And uh, there are some consequences to this. Uh, leaders at the U.S. House of Representatives canceled a planned session of Congress that was supposed to happen today after reports that this militia group might be planning to attack the Capitol. Jackie Quinn has some details. Up until 1933, today, March 4th, was Inauguration Day, and some QAnon conspiracy theorists have suggested this could be the day Donald Trump will rise again to power. Capitol Police, Homeland Security, and the FBI have warned there is intelligence suggesting a militia group is planning another takeover of the building, which was overrun with deadly results January 6th. The House was supposed to be in session today, but leaders told legislators they were accelerating business yesterday to be able to adjourn early until Monday. Jackie Quinn, Washington. Uh, it's bizarre, I know, and you think, oh, these are just a couple of, uh, you know, wacky people on social media. But uh, listen, look, after what happened on January the 6th, they have to take these things seriously, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that they are. I know that uh, law enforcement officials uh, have uh, decided to get on to high alert and make sure that something is going to be done about this and protection. Uh, and so far, I mean, there's no, there has nothing gone on as of yet that we're aware of anyway. I want to bring Brian J. Karam into the conversation. Brian, of course, is executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers, a political analyst for CNN and uh, the White House reporter for Playboy. His podcast, Just Ask the Question, is, is a, a great opportunity uh, to get the uh, story behind the story on what's going on in American politics. Brian, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be back. Are you uh, behind the barricades now? <laughs> Hunkered down in the bunker, baby. Uh, <laughs> kind of crazy. You know, the White House has been on high alert for a while, as has the Capitol. They put some additional fencing out and more uh, National Guard for today uh, in anticipation of some crazed lunatics trying to storm the Capitol. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I, I think it's uh, <laughs> that if they take a look at the security at on the mall and at the capitol it, it just it would be silly to try and do it well it doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense i know a couple of weeks ago uh, one of our global reporters was down in washington and and made that very point that he said to go from point a to point b in other words from their offices uh you know located downtown uh to try to get even near the capitol building i think he had to go through three or four checkpoints himself uh, and with armed guards there. So, and, and this is a guy who already had press credentials and everything else like this. So they're, they're certainly not taking uh, this lightly, are they? No, they're not. And, you know, this is just the sad part about it is how daggone dumb people are. 
I mean, there's just no other way to say it. But, I mean, the whole basis for this thing is that they think that Trump will ride back into town today and become the 19th president. I, you know, Rutherford B. Hayes was the 19th president. But I guess they think that since the uh, inauguration changed from March 4th to January 20th, that we really haven't had any legitimate presidents since Ulysses S. Grant. So <laughs> they think that Trump is going to, you know, ride into town and be the real president. And it's just nuts. I mean, but you have to consider the fact that these are the same people who also believe that reptilian aliens are running the world. So that kind of gives you an idea of where we're at in this country. It's well, just like we all took the wrong acid at Woodstock. <laughs> all those many years ago. And I, and yeah. I know the theories are, are, are crazy. I mean, you know, Joe Biden drinks the, you know, the blood of babies for breakfast every morning and that sort of stuff. Uh, and and it's the sad part, Brian, is, as you've talked to us about in the past, people buy into this. Yeah, these are your neighbors. These are, you know... Uh, your relatives, your friends, and um, it, it speaks a lot to the lack of education in this country more than anything else. It speaks to the lack of critical thinking, and but really what it touches upon is the despair of many people, that w- they will latch on to anything rather than reality, and that you know, creates more despair. It's a, a frightening situation that I hope, you know, it, it could be a spiral, and, and hopefully it is not. Um, Biden has made some strides to try and restore some form of normalcy to the United States, but it's going to take a while to see whether or not we get there. Donald Trump would love to just tear it all down, but um, you know, there are those of us around who believe that's probably not such a good idea. And, and by the way, for anybody who's listening to this in, in our listening area and thinking, well, those crazy Americans, this is not just an American problem. Uh, my, my wife was skiing the other day in, uh, in northern Ontario here, one of the resorts, uh, and and the guy that was on the on the bench with her taking the ride up to the top of the hill was spewing all this stuff and and, and believing it, you know. Oh, you know, he, oh, Biden's yeah. going to come in here and, and hook, line, and sinker. And I, at first she thought he was kidding, and then she realized this guy's this guy's serious. I mean, so it's it's everywhere. All you need to do is click oh, onto yeah, some of these sites. The my my wife and uh, I were uh, on a a boat between Cliffs of Dover and and Paris last summer, and we got the same stuff spewed at us. From uh, from a guy from uh, London, and he was just shouting about uh, the hoax this and the hoax that, and you know if they come up with a vaccine, you don't want to take it because they're really going to subjugate you. And some people believe you're going to get shot up with nanobots, and other people believe that they're actually going to infect you. I mean, it really is nuts, and it's everywhere. Well, and it's uh, it seems to be part of the party mantra now. If you're a, a Trump fan, and, and you know the the mega hats and everything else, I mean, the, the thing that shocked me the other day, Brian, was Mike Pence wrote a, an op-ed piece. I, mean, I know you're aware of this, but maybe our listeners yeah. didn't hear about this. Where essentially, this is the guy that got ushered out of the the state because of the the insurrection, was kept in hiding. Uh, the his boss, the president, didn't even ask about what his well-being, and now he's writing pieces essentially substantiating everything that was done and ignoring. What happened that day? I can't. Mike Pence has always been a. I've known him for many years. Back when he had a radio show in uh, Southern Indiana, and he was nuts then. He's even nuttier now. I mean, Donald Trump basically threatened his life. There were people out front of the Capitol, and I saw them chanting "Death to Mike Pence," and they were going to hang him. And now he's hook, line, and sinker. And the sad tale of that is the Republican Party is now a slave to that mindset. Donald Trump didn't create it. He exploited it. And now everyone that's in the Republican Party that clings to power is clinging to the money and that crazy lunatic base. 
they're going to destroy themselves because there are a good number of people in the United States who don't buy into this. I mean, it's not like these people are the majority. They're just a very vocal minority, and they have money, which they are now losing, and they have a voice, which they've never had before, and they're going to continue to produce this monstrosity, this miasma of perjured baloney, and they're going to keep doing it because that's what they got. They're a one-trick pony. And Mike Pence, like everyone, like Jim Jordan, like uh, Matt Gates, like all those other people, Cruz, they're all a slave to that. And they're not going to change because they think that's the only way they're going to get voted into office. They are not there for public service. They're there for private gain. But in a situation like that, though, Brian, what happens to those Republicans that, that don't drink the Kool-Aid here? That, you know, the, 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 the George Bushes, the, you know, the Mitt Romneys. Yeah, yeah they're trying to. The Republican Party is trying to get rid of anyone with common sense. And those who've had the, the wherewithal to stand up to Donald Trump have had it the hardest in the Republican Party so far. Many of them are becoming independent. Some like Mike Steele, the former lieutenant governor from Maryland and the former head of the RNC, mm-hmm. says he's like Motel 6. He's just going to stay there with a light on and wait for everybody to come back to him. <laughs> he thinks that that's the, the, the only way to, to do it is to uh, outlast the idiots. And he may be right, but the idea that the Republican Party is going to be a semblance of the party of Lincoln or even Eisenhower or Teddy Roosevelt anytime soon is just nuts. This started with Nixon. It was enhanced with Reagan. Reagan was the first to go after the far right and give them a voice. And it continued a hard right turn since 1980. And there really is, you know, they called that election in 1980 a watershed event, and it was. And where the water shed was right into a polluted barrel, and and exists to this point. And the the identity politics is, is just crazy. And I'm just wondering that there's an awful lot of disenchanted Republicans out there. But like I say, they don't have a voice. Uh, and their leader came down from the mountaintop, or I guess no, actually he came from Mar-a-Lago, I guess, uh, to attend the CPAC conference <laughs> and uh, went after all these people. I mean, it, it was it was typical Trump, wasn't it, going after Liz Cheney and anybody else that ever spoke against him. Yeah, and that's when you find a, a groove, and, and Donald Trump has his groove, he's going to stay in his groove. That's his wheelhouse. Install fear, uh, frighten people, make them hate, and make them think the only solution to their problems to give them a, a, an America that never really existed is to follow him. And there are people that desperate, and there are people that divisive, and there are people that damn dumb that they're going to do it. And the only way to appeal to that is to appeal to common sense offer legitimate alternatives and outshout them because they are what they are most productive at what they're best at is just screaming and they don't listen and there's really no place i mean you've seen the pictures in some of these riots and say these people are angry and it's Mm -hmm. frightening how angry for no reason they are many of the white supremacists and the white racists that are involved think that they're going to lose their rights and really they're just losing their privilege that's all it is you know, everyone else is going to get treated like they are, and they don't like it. And then there are the poor and the downtrodden that don't understand that Donald Trump and the, what's left of the Republican Party are stealing from them and getting them to vote for them to do it. And that's frightening, too. 
Uh, what about the guy that's in the White House right now? One of the Trump's opening salvos on Sunday during his speech there at CPAC was that uh, Joe Biden has had the worst month of the first month of president that anybody in the history. And of course, there's no no facts to back that up or anything like that. But uh, when you look at, at what Biden has tried to do in these first hundred days, especially when it comes to, to handling the COVID virus and uh, and the the vaccination program uh, and an approval rating that's one of the highest I think that we've seen in recent history, uh, people seem to be buying into the message he's giving them well i mean he's got a 60 percent approval rating right now i think that's a lot of people just going thank god donald trump isn't in but nice to wake up in the morning and not have to deal with a presidential tweet that sounds like it was written by an obnoxious drunken fourth grader so you know that's that right now the reason why biden is getting such a a, a boost is there are people just it's a sigh of relief um he has made some uh, good positive strides in his first uh, five or six weeks in office He's got many more to take. He's had a few missteps, but he's, by and large, he's an adult human being trying to do the job, which puts him head and shoulders above Donald Trump. And that's the real frightening part for the United States and the entire world. The bar has been so lowered with Donald Trump. We're just happy when we wake up in the morning and don't see a tweet from some idiot claiming, you know, whatever Donald Trump used to claim in the morning when he got up and and screamed at people. It's just, it's this whole, you know, it, it's, it's like the Stockholm syndrome and you get re- released from it and you go, wow, I'm, I'm no longer a hostage. I feel better. The virus and, and COVID, the battle against us and the vaccination program, obviously is still dominating in many ways. And the relief package that uh, was finally passed by the House a couple of days ago. Uh, but I guess the takeaway we're supposed to get from this is uh, apparently the pandemic is over in Texas. I mean, Governor Abbott has basically said, we're, we're opening up, take off your masks, everybody. We're, we are free. Uh, and and <laughs> they, last time I checked, Brian, had one of the highest rates of new uh, cases in, in, I think there were 48 out of 50 states right now. I mean, uh, but the governor governor doesn't seem to see those numbers no that's you know <laughs> I, I i say this with a caveat that i worked in texas for many years and two of my three sons were born there so uh, you know the, the saying in the united states is anybody can become an american you have to be born a texan so i have two texans as my sons and they think that texas is just crazy and there's it would be funny if it weren't so sad. But the the thing about Texas and the thing I've noticed on many of the states that supported Donald Trump, and we're talking the South, right, the Southern strategy that Nixon started, appealing to the racist, appealing mm-hmm. to the uninformed. When you look at Mississippi, when you look at Texas, when you look at Kentucky, when you look at South Carolina, West Virginia, and places like that, over the last 20 years what you've seen is a de-evolution of public servants. And the governor in Texas, Think about who used to be the governor of Texas. Remember Ann Richards, who famously said, poor yep. George Bush, he, he can't help himself. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. That type of uh, – <laughs> she was erudite. And then you look at this guy, and you go, this guy couldn't head a PTA. He couldn't be on student council. And de-evolution over the last 30 years is astounding to me. And Texas is you know, one of the worst because they've always had this idea that, you know, Texas is its own country, Texas, and then there's the United States. So whatever we do, we do for Texas. And it doesn't matter whether there's any common sense wrapped up in it or not. And Abbott has has embraced that, and he's put, you know, millions of people at risk with that move. And it's frightening to me that, you know, that they would come out and say, no, we're so close. We've got a vaccine. Hold on for another six to eight weeks. You know, Biden said, and the big news that keeps getting lost in all this 
is that by the middle of May, every adult in the United States will be able to be vaccinated. And that reduces the risk worldwide. And that, to me, is just the, you look at Texas and you look at Mississippi and you go, I don't know what's in your water, but I don't want it. Well, I've I've never been, but I know people that actually, like you, had to work down there for a couple of years, and they just say it's it's a different kind of place. And and look, I respect their heritage and their history, and 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 if they want to continue to honor Sam Houston and say he was the real leader of their country, not not any president in Washington, I get that if you want to be like that. But I'm, I'm looking at the quality, like a guy like Abbott, and and even the guy that was in there before him, Rick Perry, uh, you know who, <laughs> you know. <laughs> distinguished himself, shall we say, with uh, some of his ineptitude. Uh, and then you got Ted Cruz, of course, as one of their senators there. And you, why do they elect these people, Brian? The problem is people don't vote. In the United States, we believe that, uh, you know, it's like the old Devo song, freedom of choice is what we've got and freedom from choice is what we want. And that's pretty much in Texas. Just leave me alone. Let me get my kids to soccer practice. Let me go to work. Let me pay my bills. And you guys handle that. And it doesn't work that way. If you want to live in a democracy, you have to actually participate. And the, the, in Texas, it, the participation is low. The participation is low in Kentucky. That's why you have Mitch McConnell getting reelected. When you only have 20% of the people vote, think of how that strengthens that, that, that fervent far right who are going to vote doesn't matter they're going to turn out the vote because they want their guys in there the rest of us are trying to go to school pay our bills get our kids through you know through college all that kind of nonsense go to soccer practice be the soccer mom and we don't get involved and it's to our detriment that that we don't and that in texas i can tell you from living there they would much rather have a you know a, a weekend barbecue and and chill out than go in and and get involved in in uh in politics, and those that do want to get involved in politics, it weights the system heavily to the crazies who do. Weird stuff. Uh, stay safe, uh, my yeah. friend. I think things are going to be okay. Uh, and you can you know, peek up from the bunker there every now and then and make sure that everything's okay. Uh, <laughs> well, so far, so good. I haven't heard any explosions. I haven't heard good. any gunfire. So I'm doing all right. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Uh, again, a reminder, listeners, check out the podcast. Just ask the question. Always some great stuff in there. Brian, thanks so much for the time today. We'll talk again soon. It's always fun. Take care. Brian J. Karam, of course, uh, from the Sentinel Newspapers and uh, CNN uh, political analyst and, of course, uh, also a reporter for Playboy magazine on uh, national affairs. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.